0: Well, that is a video we want to show you as you give your offering because we want you to know uh, the difference that your offerings make. As you give each Sunday, uh, not only does your money go to Riverview Baptist Church, but it goes uh, all over the world through the cooperative program. We give 10% of every dollar that we receive towards uh, global missions, local missions, state missions. And uh, I love that video. That's so fascinating. Did you notice the gentleman from Venezuela that he's here? In America, And I think that's one of the, the fascinating things. You know, we don't just need churches started and missionaries sent all over the globe. We need churches started and missionaries sent here in America because more and more our nation is wandering from the Lord. So much so that now as other believers in other nations look at our country, they see that nation needs Jesus. And so I'm thankful to be a part of the Southern Baptist Convention that we uh, give. And as alongside that, I I want you to know December 2nd, go ahead and mark that date in your calendars. December 2nd is going to be a special day in the life of Riverview Baptist Church. Uh, That will be our Missions Sunday. Okay, on our mission Sunday, we, in addition to the monies that we set aside, uh, we also do a global missions offering. We have two days kind of throughout the year that we challenge our church to give, and our goal is to give $25,000 in addition to the monies that we're sending on, um, and so that is the goal that we've set for this coming uh, December 2nd. And as a part of that, um, many of you know Pastor Ariel Garcia, he will be preaching that day And he will be sharing how a Southern Baptist missionary changed the life and legacy of his family, changed the trajectory of his very life. And here he is today as a pastor in America. Uh, The Lord's using him to change lives here in this nation. And so to just hear that story, it's going to be a a, a great time. And we also, I believe, will have some baptisms that day. So Mission Sunday, December 2nd, come and be a part. That is going to be a great day to hear uh, and be reminded that God's not finished. He's still working all over the globe, okay? Uh, but go ahead and turn to 1 John chapter 5. 1 John chapter 5 this morning. Uh, we have made it to the final chapter of 1 John. We've been traveling through the book of 1 John for some time now. And uh, we'll be wrapping up here in the next couple of weeks the book of 1 John and, and moving into a, a Christmas series, a focus on the Advent. Uh, but um, we got five verses this morning. First John chapter five, verses one through five is what we'll be looking at today. And these verses, in many ways, are a summary of what John has already said in the previous four chapters. Uh, so the, the theme or the idea this morning is that there are these essentials of a sure faith. If I'm going to have assurance and I can know, how can I know that I have this thriving, active, genuine relationship with Jesus Christ, there are actually four characteristics Within five verses, okay? Four characteristics within five verses uh, that we'll be looking at this morning. So that means four points. So here's the deal. You guys are going to have to listen quickly this, this afternoon, okay? So get ready. Uh, we're going to dive in and uh, we'll ask the Lord to speak this morning. But go ahead and stand in honor of the reading of God's Word today. 1 John chapter 5, verses 1 through 5. Word of the Lord says this, Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God, and everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of Him. this privilege to gather in this place to sing praises to your name. Lord, may we never forget that that it is a privilege. There are many believers all over this world who don't have that privilege. God, may we um, not take this lightly. And Lord, as we hear your word preached today, Father, we thank you that you are present. We ask that you would speak. God, that our hearts would be open to hear what you would have to say to us. Father, thank you that Jesus is the Son of God, that he has overcome May we learn how we can be obedient and overcoming in our own lives. Father, we love you. We ask these things in your name. Amen. So the main idea this morning is that as God's children believe, love, and obey him, then they are able to overcome the world. So as God's children believe, love, and obey, those are the first three, then they overcome. That's the fourth. Uh, But it's important to note that this idea starts with belief, starts with belief. There's a famous saying, what you believe about tomorrow determines how you live today. You ever heard something like that before? What you believe about tomorrow determines how you live today. It's undoubtedly true. It's the reason that conspiracy theorists wear tinfoil hats, right? Because their beliefs are determining how they are going to live. It determines their actions. It's the reason that some people vote Democratic, some others vote Republican. There are some beliefs that are informing the decisions that are being made. And so we must uh, pay attention then. What is it that I'm believing? I'm going to tweak that famous saying just a little bit that I recited to you a moment ago. I'll say it to you this way. I believe what you believe about God determines why you live today. What you believe about God determines why you live today. Let's break that down just a moment. So here's the the, the fact. The simple fact of the matter is, if I believe there is no God, then who am I going to live for? What is my purpose in life? Me, right? My purpose will be to make me happy. It will be to find my own comfort, my own assurance, to pursue my own desires. If I believe, then Uh, wrongly that God is some sort of of mean, angry God who's always out to get me, if he's some sort of spiteful guy in the sky, then it's likely that I'm going to live in fear. I'm going to live in a way that I'm trying to appease this angry person who might get me. But if I believe the truth, if I believe that God is my loving and heavenly Father who sent his Son to rescue me, then I want to live for him. I want to live in a way that pleases him. I want to live in a way that allows me to know him more. And so what we believe about God determines absolutely why we live today. This starts, again, with belief, these four characteristics. So I want to start in verse 1. Let's just look very quickly at verse 1. It says this. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. We'll stop right there. So the first thing we need to note is that a child of God believes the biblical gospel. The child of God believes. Who has a sure faith that can be counted on and trusted Believes the biblical gospel The gospel of the Bible and nowhere else You see, faith is a good thing And faith is admired in our society If you've ever heard uh, phrases like this Well, I am a spiritual individual Or I'm a praying person Or I believe that I'm a person of faith Or perhaps this I believe somehow that there's a higher power Right? I'm just not into organized religion We've heard these kind of statements But see, the reality is this, faith in faith itself is not necessarily a good thing. Faith in just the idea of having faith is not enough. Where we place our faith matters. I would ask that person that says, well, I'm a person of faith and I I pray to a higher power. I would ask them a question perhaps like this. What is it exactly then that you're saying you believe? What is it? Who is it that you pray to? How do you know that this person is even good? How do we know that they're there? On what basis do we make these claims? You see, a misplaced faith, friends, is actually a dangerous faith. misplaced faith is actually a dangerous faith. And this is obvious when we look at perhaps uh, false um, religions or we look especially at cults like the Branch Davidians. It's very clear. It's very plain. That's dangerous. But a misplaced faith Can be dangerous in much more subtle ways, in much more less or much less obvious ways. One of the lasting legends of the great stock market collapse of the nineteen twenties that led to the Great Depression is one of uh, ruined stock market brokers who were throwing themselves out of windows twenty stories high, who were jumping off the tops of roofs and off of bridges. They. We're doing this in record number. Will Rogers, who is a a famous writer, happened to be in New York on Black Thursday, October 24th, 1929. Listen to what he says in his nationally syndicated newspaper column. He wrote, When Wall Street took that tailspin, you had to stand in line to get a window to jump out of. And speculators were selling space for bodies in the East River. In fact, they were afraid it was going to get clogged up. We laugh, but I want to take just a moment. How had stock market investing suddenly turned deadly? How was it possible that people, smart people, could somehow reach a point where they're willing to say this and rationalize this in their minds? It would be better for me to die. It would be better for me to kill myself than to live in poverty. I'd rather die than be poor. How is it possible that they could reach that point? Friends, it was a misplaced faith. You see, what had happened is these people had taken their identities, they'd taken their hope, they'd taken what they believed was all that mattered in life, and they'd placed it in the almighty American dollar. And when that dollar crashed, there was no hope for them. And so many people chose to take their lives that day. A misplaced faith, even as something as inconspicuous as a dollar, is a dangerous faith. Saving faith, then, where can we turn? What does saving faith look like? Where can we find saving faith? Saving faith trusts what is true, first of all. You see, saving faith doesn't just trust in a dollar. Saving faith doesn't trust in fame. Saving faith doesn't trust in any other thing, not even in fallen sinful people. Saving faith is placed in one perfect person, and his name is Jesus Christ. You see, Jesus doesn't fail. Jesus doesn't let us down. And I believe this saving faith really has two aspects to it that we need to think of through this morning. Number one, saving faith has a factual content. It must, we must believe in the historic person of Jesus of Nazareth. That just as much as Black Thursday is a fact in history, friends, Black Friday, Good Friday as we call it, is also a fact in history. Jesus really was the prophesied Messiah. He really did walk around on this earth. He really did die in bodily form, and he really did rise again three days later um, as a physical person. You can take it to the bank. And so here's the thing. I think many of us know that, but just to know these facts is not enough. You see, the Bible tells us in the book of James that even the demons believe that God is one and shudder. The demons know these facts. Make no mistake about it. The demons know that Jesus died and they know he rose again. And the demons, I can guarantee you, will not be in heaven. So then what sets us apart? How do we know? Is it If it's not just facts, then how do I know? What makes my saving faith an actual saving faith? The answer is this. We must also believe that this Messiah who lived 2,000 years ago is enough for you and me today. We have to believe that his death and resurrection deal directly with my personal sin problems. That as he died on the cross, he was doing something on my behalf today even. Ultimately this, the Old Testament tells us that Jesus came to save his people from their sins and to set the captives free. We have to come to a place in our lives where we understand, "Uh uh-oh, I'm a sinner Uh uh-oh, I'm a captive, and I need to be set free. I need to be set free from the power of sin and death in my life, and if I'm not, there's nowhere else that I can turn. I can't earn my way out of it. I can't be good enough. I can't attend enough church services. I can't do anything that will rescue me, that will set me free, that will change me from being this captive to being a free man except one thing, the blood of Jesus Christ. And so if I am willing to turn from living for myself and I'm willing to trust in him, then I can be set free. That is what a saving faith looks like. Anything other than Jesus, simple son of God and savior of the world, anything other than Jesus Christ, the killed and crucified king, anything other than Jesus as resurrected royalty, anything other than Jesus as the coming conqueror and returning redeemer is not the gospel. All of those things are necessary. You see, the guards at the tomb that first Easter morning, they ended up on their faces when they saw the resurrected king, friends. And make no mistake, when we see him face to face for the first time, that's where we will be too. You see, Jesus really is a friend of sinners. Thank God for that. He is. But if Jesus is just a friend and nothing more, then I would caution you because Jesus is also a king. You see, Jesus died, Jesus rose, and Jesus reigns now, today. And so if I don't know him, if I haven't surrendered my life to his authority, and I've come to a place in my own life where I have not said, uh, you're in charge, God. I'm not. You, You call the shots from here on out. I surrender to your will, your way. I'm tired of living for myself. If that hasn't happened, and I haven't turned from my sin and asked God to forgive me of those things and chosen to follow him as king, then it's likely that I don't know him as savior. And so we must ask ourselves have I trusted Jesus this way in a saving way? Do I have a saving faith? A child of God believes the biblical gospel. Secondly, we need to see this when you see a child of God loves God first and then other people in that order. A child of God loves God first, and then other people in that order. Let's look at the back half of one, and then verse two. By this we know that we love the children of God. Oops, excuse me, I started in verse two, let me back up. And everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of Him. By this we know that we love the children of God. When we love God and obey His commandments... And up to this point, I just want to remind us, John has been saying some things that actually look like the exact opposite of this, if we're doing a surface reading. So if we go back and we look at chapter 4, which is what we're going to do in just a second, what it looks like he is saying is that as I love people, as I love the children of God, then I can be assured that I love God. So let's look at this. 1 John chapter 4, verse 7. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Verse 20, look at this one. If anyone says, I love God, and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has, or whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And so at first glance, there seems to be a problem here. It almost seems like, John, are you contradicting yourself? Or, John, is this some sort of circular reasoning that you're caught in? What's what's happening here? It's not circular reasoning. John is not wrong. John is not confused. What he is doing for us in this section is actually helping us. He's helping us understand the secret. You see, the secret to loving other people well is loving God first. And so he's showing us... Yes, as I love people, that displays my love for God, but I've got to love God first to love them right. And here's what that means. Here's what that looks like. Here's how that applies to us today. We live in a culture that says unconditional acceptance is the ideal standard of love. Unconditional acceptance. So that means if you love me, then you will accept me for my truth. If you love me, then you won't tell me that I'm wrong. If you love me, you will let me do the things that I believe will lead to my happiness. Because after all, don't I have the right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness? How dare you stand in the way? It's a popular lie in our culture that has gained a lot of attraction, a lot of traction in our society. The reason that it has has gained such traction is because there is a powerful half truth contained inside of it. The half truth is this you see, true love is in fact unconditional. You see, it really does never give up, it really does never fail, as 1 Corinthians tells us. Uh, That is true love. But here's the difference you can still love someone and tell them that they're wrong. I do it all the time. (laughs) I look at my children. John, I love you, but I'm not letting you play with bleach today, son. I'm sorry. Right? You're wrong. We're not going to do that because I love him. And so what we actually find is this, friends. True love always rejoices with the truth. Do you see that? True love always rejoices with the truth. True love does not delight in falsehood. True love does not delight in deceit. True love rejoices when people see the truth. And here's what Jesus has told us. You shall know the truth, and the truth shall set you free. And so if we love people, then we have to be a gracious people of truth. Even atheists know that loving God first helps us love God best. Even atheists know that. Um, there's an atheist by the name of Penn Jillette. He's a magician, and he's a very witty man. I've, I've listened to a lot of things that he said and, and heard uh, or read some of the things that he's written. Uh, But he's had a very successful uh, magic act, pen and teller, um, that was really popular a few years ago. And at a meet and greet after one of his shows, he tells a story. He tells a story of a man who came and met him. And uh, part of the magic show is that they profess their atheism at different points. He's very vocal about the fact that he believes there definitely is no such thing as God. And so this man comes to him after his magic show and he compliments him on the show and he says, you know, I had no idea how you were able to do some of the things that you did. I have no idea how you worked some of the magic that you worked. But he said, I do want you to know that I care about you and I want to give you this book. He pulls something out of his pocket and he hands him a pocket New Testament, the New Testament and the Psalms. And he says, I've written in the cover of this book and it's for you. I want you to read it. I want you to take it. And Penn Gillette, although he is a very staunch atheist, said this upon this interaction. Gillette was moved by the man's gesture, and he recalled, he was kind and nice and sane. I love that. And looked me in the eyes and just talked to me and then gave me this Bible. He says this, listen, I've always said that I don't respect people who don't proselytize. I don't respect that at all if you believe there is a heaven and a hell and people could be going to hell or not getting eternal life or whatever and you think it's not really worth telling them this because it would make it socially awkward, how much do you have to hate somebody not to proselytize? How much do you have to hate someone to believe everlasting life is possible and not tell them that? You see, as far as I know, Pendulet is still an atheist, but here's what I do also know. He knows real love when he sees it. You say a real love is willing to speak the real truth. And what that means is this I have to be careful with my relationships. I have to watch my heart and make sure that I am not loving a person more than I love Jesus Christ. If I love a person more than I love God, I won't be able to point out their sin because it'll make things uncomfortable. If I love a person more than I love Jesus, then I'm going probably at times to withhold the gospel because it could be awkward. If I love a person more than I love God, see, here's what is actually happening. As I do that, I'm not actually loving the person. Guess who I'm loving? Loving me. Loving the way this relationship makes me feel. I'm loving the things that I get from this interaction. And so I'm going to make sure that I hold on to my own self-interest first, even at the expense of an eternity in hell for that person. You see, loving God first, friends, really does help us love other people best. And this doesn't just apply to unbelievers. This applies to those that God has placed in our lives as well. You see, Jesus helps me to see that my friends are not just my friends. They're his He helps me understand that i'm accountable to him for the way that I interact with my peers I'm accountable to jesus christ as to whether or not I choose to invest in their lives and love them and build them up to help Them know jesus better And i'm accountable to jesus christ if I choose not to because i'm too busy or i'd rather just watch football or do some other thing You see He helps me understand that my children are not just my children They're his children And he loves them a thousand times better, a million times better, infinitely better than I ever could anyway. And so I can trust Jesus with my children. You see, knowing that I love Jesus first and and being faithful and obedient to that helps me love my spouse the way that God designed me to. Suddenly, my spouse is not here to meet my needs. My spouse is not here to make life easier or do the things that I think he or she should be doing. All of a sudden, I understand my spouse is a child of God. And I exist in this relationship to help her or him follow Jesus more closely. Does the way that I speak to them, does the way that I treat them reflect that? We are suddenly able to see and steward these relationships with a view towards heaven. Because here's the the thing, guys it's so easy to forget. One human life, you may be, if you're lucky, get 75 years, 80 years, maybe 90. In light of eternity, 90 years, it's like that. It's over. It's done. There's nothing left. And so the question is, am I stewarding my life and the lives of the people that God has trusted to me with a view towards heaven, because that's where we're all going, or not. If I am not faithful to love God first, I will not love other people best. I'll love me. And so we need to ask ourselves, am I honestly doing that? Am I honestly trusting Jesus with the relationships he's given me? A child of God loves God and then other people in that order. Next, we need to see that a child of God gladly obeys their father. A child of God gladly obeys their father. Look at verse 3. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. That's interesting. The way to love God is to keep his commandments. We've got to be careful here, because that sounds like, very much so, legalism. If I do the commands and I do the right stuff, then I am loving God. And so I've got to do my Christian duty and I've got to make sure that I'm coming to enough church services and I've got to make sure that I'm reading my Bible or I'm praying or maybe that I am treating my wife kindly or whatever the situation may be. And this is kind of my duty as a Christian. Wrong. Faith without works is dead. Jesus said it this way. If you love me, you will obey my commandments and so here's what that means the way that we obey our command or his commandments reflects our love for him but it is not the way we love him the way that we obey his commandments reflects that love for him another way to say it is this i've said it uh, in a previous sermon you will obey what you love naturally You will naturally honor, you will naturally give yourself to, you will naturally give your time and energy and effort to the things that you love. And so if I love Jesus, then I will obey him. I will choose to because it is good and right and best, and I'm convinced of that. But I want to look at the back half of this verse for just a minute. There's a statement that's very interesting here. And his commandments are not burdensome. Let that roll around in your head for just a moment. His commandments are not burdensome. His commandments are not burdensome. Can you agree with that today? Because let's just be honest. This book, is well over a thousand pages of fine print. Many of them filled with command after command after command. How is that not burdensome? Again, let's just be honest, Christians. There is actually um, statistics and research that show that many people who are professing Christians, people who claim to know Jesus Christ in their entire lifetimes will never make it all the way through this book. So how is it true then that his commandments are not burdensome? That sounds burdensome. How is it true? Well, in one sense it can be. God's commands are burdensome if it's just the commands of a detached God telling you to become a better version of yourself. You see, God's commands really can be burdensome if I see him as some distant deity that is just saying to me over and over and over again throughout a thousand pages, get your act together. That's burdensome. But listen to this. It's not burdensome if I see this rightly. It's not burdensome if I understand that this is a letter from a loving father. A letter that was written to me and given to me and that before the foundation of the world, before the stars were spoken into existence, God knew and saw me. He knew that I would read it. He knew that I would need it. And he has given us this to help us navigate life in a broken, fallen world so that we can live the lives we're called to live, the lives we're meant to live, you see, it's not burdensome to spend hours pouring over a love letter. Your father has written to you from a distant land to let you know that you're his child. It's not a burdensome letter that tells you there is a way that leads to life. There's a, a way that leads to peace. There's a way that leads to purpose. But there is also a way that leads to death that, ne- that needs to be avoided. There's a way that leads to destruction. It's not a burdensome letter. It is a love letter That says, I'm coming to rescue you. I see you. I love you. I know you. And I'm coming back for you. This is what we've been given. This is a good gift from God. His commandments are not burdensome when I see them rightly. You see, a child of God obeys his father and loves his word. The Bible is not this. The B I B L E, which is an acronym that I once saw, says Basic Instructions Before Leaving Earth. Anyone ever heard that? I'll just say wrong. I don't know about you. I don't read instructions. I take instructions and I throw them out. Okay? Instructions are boring. This is not just a book of instructions. This is God speaking to you today and every day. And so the question is do I see it as such? Do I treat it that way? Am I excited that God loves me enough to speak to me? And am I willing to be still and let Him do so? A child of God gladly obeys their Father. Lastly, we need to see that a child of God overcomes the world by their faith. A child of God overcomes the world by their faith. Let's look at verses 4 and 5 together. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? And so a child of God overcomes through faith, not living by sight, not living by just common sense, but by living in faith day in and day out, moment by moment. So here's the deal. The pathway to overcoming is these first three steps. Believing, loving, and obeying. In spite of my circumstances, I choose to believe that Jesus' way is best. Despite how my emotions may be wrestling in my heart, I choose to love God. Despite what may be happening around me, I choose to obey Him, no matter what this world may say. Hebrews eleven six tells us this. It's one of my favorite verses. It Says, without faith, it is impossible to please God, because anyone who comes to Him must believe that He exists, and then believe that He is a rewarder of those who seek Him. So there it is. Without faith, how am I going to overcome the world? Through faith. How am I going to please God? Through faith. And I love the, the two simple components that it's boiled down into. What do I need to believe? I need to believe that He's there. I believe that He loves me and He knows me and He is present no matter how I may look at the world around me today. But then secondly, I believe that He is a rewarder of those who seek Him. Another simple way of saying that is I believe He's good. I believe that God is good every moment of every day. And as I believe that He is with me and I believe that He is good, then I understand and I can remind myself He's trustworthy. And so I can trust Him, and I can overcome my circumstances. I ended with the book of Job last week. We'll do it again this week. God has used Job um, to help me greatly on a personal level. As a young pastor, even as an associate pastor, I am often closer to suffering and to death and difficulty than I would often like to be. I see people that I know, people that I love, walk through great hardship, walk through immense physical pain, walk through oftentimes loss and grief that words cannot express. And I would be dishonest if I didn't say that there are days that this wounds me deeply because I watch people that I love walk through these things. But God has used the book of Job, Job nineteen twenty five and 26, to encourage me. It just says this. It says, I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the last he will stand upon the earth. Listen, after my skin has been destroyed, yet in my flesh shall I see God. You see, Job literally lived that. His skin was destroyed. He had boils festering on his skin as he walked through hardship after hardship after hardship, loss after loss after loss, and still he's able to say, I know my Redeemer lives. Friends, this is what it looks like to overcome. This is what a faith that overcomes does. How did he do that? How is it possible? God propped him up Absolutely, God sustained him. But then I believe this. You see, Job believed. Job loved. Job obeyed, regardless of the circumstances. This is what God has given us to do. And as we do those things, friends, we are able to overcome through the power of Jesus Christ. So I just want to refocus this as we wrap up. If our faith is what overcomes... We need to be careful not to misplace it. I just want to ask you, what are you putting your faith in today, this moment? Where is your hope? We can't rest in God's salvation because we signed some commitment card years ago. You see, I can't rest assured just because I walked an aisle when I was 10 years old. It's not enough. Friends, that is the definition of a misplaced faith then where do we look? How do we know? Am I believing? Am I loving? Am I obeying today? Am I trusting Jesus here and now in this very moment? That is where we must look. Do I have an active relationship with Christ even now? This is what a sure faith looks like. Let's pray together. Father, we love you. God, we thank you that you call us, Lord, to have assurance. Lord, you call us and you've given us the book of 1 John to help us know what it looks like. And Lord, we pray now that even as we reflect on our own lives, Father, that you would find us faithful. God, that you would help us to believe, to love, to obey you at any expense. And God, I pray even now, if there is someone here today who does not know you as their King, if they don't know you as their personal Lord and Savior, God, that they would recognize the seriousness of their sin, that they would turn and that they would run to your open arms at the foot of the cross, finding your peace, your forgiveness, your purpose awaits them. God, may we in this moment be empowered overcome because we trust in you. We love you and we thank you for Jesus Christ. We ask these things in his name. Amen. If you're here today and the Lord has spoken to you, I want to give you just a moment to respond. I'll be here at the front, and I would count it a privilege and an honor to talk with you, to pray with you. If the Lord speaks, please go ahead and move. If you would, go ahead and stand and prepare to sing at this time.